Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 100. 
This is God's call to you, to worship him. This is God's word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are good, and you have brought us here this morning in all of our different experiences, all of our different anxieties and worries, perhaps sadness and grief, or perhaps our joys and the things we are eager and looking forward to experiencing this week or this month or this coming year. Whatever it might be, Lord, you have brought us here by the power of your Spirit to worship you. You have called us into your presence. We pray that you would humble us by your Spirit, that you would bring uh, all of our thoughts in line with yours, that you would cause us to be receptive to your word this morning as it's read and preached and sung. Lord, help us in this time of worship by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn, which is hymn number one, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. Let's sing hymn number one. would remain standing, we'll confess our faith together with the confession that's printed in your bulletin. So I will ask you, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. If you would like to turn to our New Testament reading this morning, it is Luke chapter 8, verses 49 through 56. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 49. This is our New Testament reading. This is God's Word. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have entered into what many know as the Lenten season, or the season of Lent, which is those 40 days uh, leading up to Easter. And Lent is all about looking forward to the resurrection of Christ. And in our passage from Luke chapter 8, we see glimpses of that resurrection power that is to come. And so we'll take a few moments now to pray uh, in light of this truth, God's word, and this hope that we have in the resurrection. Uh, We'll take a few moments to go before the Lord silently and individually. Uh, It's a time that you can use to confess your sins. It's a time you can use to simply pray whatever it is on your mind or your heart to God, to talk to God about these things. Uh, He hears you. He will answer you. He is with us. So after a time of individual prayer, I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's go before God and pray now. Dear Father, we are grateful for this time of prayer, and we are thankful for your word, how you teach us how to even pray. You give us the words 
to pray during times like these. And Lord, so we rehearse what Scripture has told us. Um, By you and through you, all things exist. And in your wisdom, it was fitting that you should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. And so we will tell of you and tell of your name to everyone. In the midst of this congregation, we will sing your praise. Lord Jesus, you experienced the same life as us, and through death you destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, and you delivered all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You freed us from slavery to sin and death and given us resurrection life and hope. You are a great Savior. And what love you've shown us and continue to show us. And in the light of your salvation and grace, we can come before you in confession, not in fear, but in complete security and with eagerness. God, we have sinned and done wrong and rebelled in all manner of ways today, this past week, throughout our lives, and we will sin in the future. We've turned aside from your commandments and your word. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us often shame and judgment. And when we experience the repercussions and consequences of our sin by your providential hand, we haven't sought the favor of the Lord our God. We haven't turned from our sins and gained insight by your truth, as Daniel says. We double down, we make excuses, we become defensive, we enjoy our anger. And so we pray, Lord, forgive us and free us. Dear God, would you incline your ear and hear? Would you open your eyes and see our pain and confusion? We don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. We present them before you because of your great mercy. So again, as Daniel prayed, we pray his words, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, your people are called by your name. So we bless your name, Lord, this morning. You forgive all of our sins. You redeem us from the pits. You've crowned us with steadfast love and mercy, and you renew us from the inside out. And you know our frame. You know that we're dust, and you care for us. So we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would, again, care for us this morning as we are in this place to worship you. We pray for Pastor Gonzalo, for his eyes, that you would give the medical team the doctors that are caring for him, you know, precision uh, and perfect care to restore the health of his eyes, that you would bring him back to complete health for his own sake, for his family's sake, for your sake, uh, for the glory of the gospel, as he is so integral to not just his church, but to uh, a global team of people who are called to serve you through him and his church and through the organizations that he leads. So God, restore him to full health quickly, we pray. God, there are those in this church 
who we pray for each week, who are weak or who are struggling for whatever reason, God, would you give great encouragement to them? Would you perhaps bring someone alongside them to walk with them in their pain or their grief or their troubles, someone who they can be honest with and open with? That is a great gift, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would be honored, that your name would be made great through this simple time of worship this morning. Though it is simple, Lord, you do amazing, supernatural things through this place and through your spirit. And so we bless you. Would you lead us in the prayer that you taught your disciples how to pray now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you please stand? I invite you to stand for our next hymn, which is hymn number 309, Rejoice the Lord is King. Let's stand and sing.
You may be seated. We'll now take up our morning tithes and offerings, and we, we give to the Lord as he has given to us, and we'll do that as the choir sings.
Please pray with me. God, we give you these tithes and offerings this morning for your kingdom's sake. Would you multiply them uh, like you multiplied the bread, and would you use it for your purposes here and across the world? And we thank you for this opportunity to give, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, and we'll read the first 15 verses of that chapter. Hear God's word. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on. And since you have come to your servant, so uh, since you have come to your servant, So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And this ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing during this time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to look into the story of this great patriarch and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. We pray that you would bless this time, that you would instruct us and build us up 
in our faith. Speak to us now, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so I want to talk this morning about Sarah laughing. Uh, when she gets the news that she's going to have a child, she laughs. And we've been working through the, the book of Genesis, and this is old news for us. It's this promise of a child has been repeated to Abraham over and over again, but this is the first time we get to see Sarah directly receive the news uh, that in her advanced age, she's going to have a child. And so when she receives this news, as she overhears it, she laughs. Uh, it's like she just heard the punchline of a joke. So I don't like to, I try not to make a practice of telling jokes from the pulpit, but I thought it was appropriate this morning uh, that we do so. So, for instance, what is the only state that's mentioned in the Bible? It's my home state, Arkansas. Right? Noah looked out of the ark and saw. <laughs> oh, can we do worse? Let's see. Who was the richest woman in the Old Testament? Pharaoh's daughter. She went to the bank of the Nile and withdrew a great profit. <laughs> Finally. Yeah, have three, three points, three jokes. Um, knock, knock. Thank you. Broken pencil. Never mind, it's pointless. <laughs> Most of you got that joke. <laughs> but if you didn't, the problem with the joke is that if you have to explain the punchline, then it's pointless. Just forget about it. You can't explain a joke. The point of the joke is the experience of the joke, not the explanation of the joke. So with that said, I'm taking a chance this morning because I'm attempting to explain the joke that's taking place here that's causing Sarah to laugh. So three points. The scenario of the joke, the audience of the joke, and the punchline of the joke. So number one, the scenario of the joke. Well, the scenario is that God shows up in the appearance of of a man. So starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. <clears throat> so some people think this is an allusion to the Trinity. Uh, I think it's more likely that this is two angels as we'll see more about as we continue in this chapter, along with God himself appearing in a visible, physical form that can't be differentiated from men. As Abraham sees these beings, they appear to be men. And most commentators think that Hebrews 13.2 is alluding to this passage when it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So think of this scenario. The God who created all things and angels are showing up unawares, 
so to speak. They're showing up in the likeness of men. No, nothing weird about that, right? Well, it's, it's very weird. It's almost outrageous. But this story and other stories where God appears in physical form is preparing God's people for the fact that God is going to show up in an actual physical form, not just the appearance of man, but actually as a man in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I was reading uh, a George Whitfield sermon years ago, and he was talking about Enoch in the Old Testament, and he mentions Elijah as well as two men who were called up into heaven in physical form to be with God. And he said that God gave us stories like this, that he caused history to play out like this, so that when Jesus Christ in the New Testament shows up and ascends into heaven in physical form, the Jewish people wouldn't be able to say this is outrageous. There's no precedent for it. And so here, God's showing up in the likeness of men. It's setting a precedent because the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, which we've spent all of December and Christmas talking about, there's, there's already precedent for it in the Old Testament. I want you to think about this morning how outrageous this is. Like if you were God, would you become a man? I mean, how much of a stretch is that? How much of a leap or step down, I guess you could say, is that? It's more so than a star becoming a black hole or a human being becoming a cockroach. But that's exactly what this story is preparing us for. F.B. Meyer, commentating on this passage, said, In this encounter with Abraham and Sarah, the Son of God anticipated his incarnation and was found in fashion as a man before he became flesh. Jesus loved to come incognito into the homes of those he cherished as his friends. It's very marvelous. We may well ask with deepest reverence and awe the question of Solomon when he felt the utter inadequacy of his splendid temple as the abode of the eternal God. Will God in very deed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain him. How much less this house that I have built. But this question has been forever settled by God himself in the majestic words, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And the life of Jesus is a delightful commentary on these mighty affirmations. He said to a tax collector, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide in thy house. He went to the home of Peter and was ministered to by one of his household, whom he had raised from the gates of death. And after the resurrection, he entered the humble lodging of the two disciples in whose company he had walked from Jerusalem, seeking to dry their tears as they went. Nor is this all. There is no heart so lowly, but that he will enter. There is no home so humble but that he will make himself a welcome inmate. There is no table so poorly provided, but that he will sit there, turning water into wine, multiplying the loaves and fishes, and covering the simple meal 
converting the simple meal into a sacrament. When seated at the table with those he loves, he still takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. To each and to all he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You see the marvel of it. The Bible is telling us that in the person of Jesus Christ, God became a man so that he could dwell with us. This was the plan from the very beginning, and, and episodes like this in the Old Testament are just foreshadowing it. Jesus Christ, God's entire plan, was that he was going to come and suffer so that we could be healed. That he was going to come and die so that we could live. And see, You've heard it all a thousand times. And that's the only reason you're not laughing at it. Because it's just, it's, it's marvelous. It's, it's ridiculous. It's almost like nonsense. And you've heard it so much, it, it, that doesn't stand out to you anymore. But God becoming man. It's the wildest story that's ever been told. It's stranger than the strangest science fiction. It's wilder than the wildest fairy tale. And that's why Peter in the New Testament, when he's talking about the incarnation of Christ in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths or fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why does he have to say that? These things we're telling you, they're, they're not myths, they're not fables, they're not fairy tales. It's because they sound like myths, fables, and fairy tales. They sound too good to be true. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The word folly that he uses there is translating, translating the Greek word Maria or moria, it's related to our English word for moron. Paul is saying, in God's wisdom, he realized that through wisdom, the world wasn't going to be able to just figure this out and find its way to God. And so he stead, instead, he chose to give us this foolishness, this folly, this moronic idea, as it appears to us, that God himself was going to become man. And it's through the preaching of that folly, that foolishness, that people are actually saved. And it's only through, the, people don't get saved through their wisdom. They're trying to figure God out. They're trying to figure out the way of salvation. But instead, it's through the proclamation of God becoming man, living a perfect life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved in our place, becoming our substitute, and simply saying, now just trust in that. Just trust in it by faith. And that's all there is to do. As one writer puts it, the folly of preaching Christ crucified is preaching the king who looks like a beggar, the prince of peace who looks like the prince of fools, the lamb of God who ends up like something hung up at the butcher shop. And this is the message that saves sinners and grants them eternal life. So what's the scenario of this joke that Sarah's laughing at? It's God appearing as a man before she and her husband. Here's the second point. Let's talk about 
the audience of this joke. So on top of the wildness of God becoming man, we need to think about why God became man. In our passage, it's to tell the audience of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman that they're going to have a child. And understand, Abraham and Sarah, you may think that ancient people were primitive and didn't understand. They understood they were not capable at this point of having children. This was going to take a miracle. Now for us, in the context of Christ's incarnation, Jesus is a miracle child coming to make us lost, dead, helpless sinners into God's children. The audience, you and me, children of God. It's like, what a joke! Children of God. Do you feel like a child of God? Maybe in my very best moments for about three seconds I do. But most of the time I don't. Then in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. See what manner of love the Father has given to us. The King James translates it more strikingly. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Behold, I heard Tim Keller say, you know, behold is a striking word. You don't say, you, don't, you get your paycheck on Friday and you don't say, behold, my paycheck. Why? It's because you earned it. There's nothing striking about that, but this idea of us becoming children of God, it's behold, look at it. This is amazing. This is astounding. We're children of God now. We didn't earn this. This was God's love. This is God's grace. And this is outlandish. This is wonderful. This is marvelous. And the only reason we're not laughing at it is because we've heard it a thousand times. And once you've heard the joke a thousand times, it ceases to be funny. When John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. He uses a Greek word. We translate manner in the ESV. It actually means what country is this love from? It's, it's foreign. Where could this possibly have come from? It's so out of this world. Steven Spielberg, the director, said that one of, one of the things that drew him so strongly to the script of the movie that he ended up directing, E.T., is that the story, you know, Elliot, the little boy in the story, He's just witnessed his parents going through a divorce. And Spielberg, when he was growing up, witnessed his parents going through a divorce. And he said he had asked himself the question, what could you possibly give to a child who's been through a divorce with his parents that could heal the wound that those events would cause? And Spielberg said the answer is obvious. It would take something out of this world. E.T., an extraterrestrial. It would take something alien coming in. 
to this child's life to bring that kind of healing. The story of the Bible, the whole story from the second person of the Trinity appearing in the form of man at the door of the tent of Abraham, through him actually becoming a baby in the manger, and then being lifted up on a cross. This is God's love coming from out of this world in order to heal our deepest wounds. I want to ask you, when's the last time you listened to the gospel like you were listening to a joke and were waiting for the punchline? It's funny, I started off telling those jokes at the beginning. It's fun to watch y'all because you, you you give the dramatic pause and I can see the anticipation. You're waiting for that punchline. When's the last time you listened to the gospel like a joke and you were waiting for the punchline? Listening to the fact that God came as a baby so that he could make us his child, his children. That he came to suffer so that we could be healed. That he came to die so that we could live. That he rose from the dead so that we'll not only live but so that our life can be eternal. Paul says it's folly. It's nonsense. Peter has to remind us this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a myth because it's as wild as a myth. It's as wild as a fairy tale, but it's actually true. C.S. Lewis called it the true myth. It has all the thing that mythology brings, but the, has the added benefit of it actually happened. It's actually true. It's the fairy tale that also happens to be real. And I can keep trying to explain it. But the beauty of the joke is, if you have to explain it, it's missed the mark. You know, if you get the joke, you get the joke. When Sarah hears the joke, she's going to have a child. She denies laughing. God says, oh, but you did laugh. She got the joke. Do you get it? You know, people who don't believe the gospel... You know, it's not that the gospel is this far out, ununderstandable thing. It's you know, in our sin, through our wisdom, we want to contribute to our salvation. We want to figure this thing out. And, and God says it's as simple as this. Either you get it or you don't. If you don't get it, today's the day to ask the Holy Spirit to open up your heart, to open up your mind, and to open up your eyes so that you can see. You know, I had... Um, Boy, as a minister, I've experienced so many things. I have so many stories. One of the most interesting things I ever saw I was, was actually before I became a minister. I was at a baseball field, and a friend of mine and me were trying to share the gospel with a non-believer whom we knew in my hometown, and we were just explaining. It's grace. Jesus Christ comes to live a perfect life, to die in our place, that it's through that death that we receive forgiveness of sins. It's through his resurrection that we receive eternal life. It's just simple gospel presentation. And the gentleman we were talking to, he said, I, I just, I can't. I can't buy that. Like, tell me something to do. He, he pointed at a flagpole with the American flag on it there at the ball field. And he said, tell me to climb that flagpole. That's something I can do. But this whole just believe thing, this grace thing, I can't do that. I don't know what to do with that. What? 
who's just as much as a 90-year-old woman having a baby is a miracle. Us believing that simple message of Christ crucified and risen for us, it's a miracle. It takes God giving us a new heart. It's a miracle. And so people are always saying, give me something to do. I gotta There's got to be more to this. No. It's sheer grace. It's sheer grace. You see, you see the joke? Frederick Buechner said, God is the cosmic shepherd who gets more of a kick out of that one lost sheep once he finds it again than out of the 99 who had the good sense not to get lost in the first place. God is the eccentric host who when the country club crowd all turned out to have other things more important to do than come live it up with him, goes out into the skid rows and soup kitchens and charity wards and brings home a freak show. The man with no legs who sells shoelaces at the corner. The old woman in the moth-eaten fur, old woman in the moth-eaten fur coat who makes her daily rounds of the garbage cans. The old wino with this pint in a brown paper bag. The pusher, the miscreant, the village idiot who stands at the blinker light waving his hand as the cars go by. They're seated at the elegant table in the great hall. The candles are all lit and the champagne glasses filled. At the sign from the host, the musicians in their gallery strike up amazing grace. If you have to explain it, don't bother. Here's the third point. So we've got the context of the joke. We've got the recipients, the audience of the joke, just normal human beings in need of a miracle. Finally, the punchline of the joke. In our passage in verse 13, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Hebrew word translated hard can mean marvelous, extraordinary, wonderful. God is saying, Abraham, does Sarah believe that there are things too marvelous and extraordinary and difficult for me that I can't do them? What's the answer to that? How do you answer that? There are probably things that you want in your own life that when you think about them, they're so ridiculous that you can't even bring yourself to pray and ask God to do them because you think it would take that much of a miracle. It would be that extraordinary for it to happen that you're almost embarrassed even to bring it up. Is it too hard for the Lord to turn your mourning into dancing and your sorrow into joy? Is it too hard for Him to work in the life of a family member that you're constantly forgetting to pray for? Or maybe you're slow to pray for because you just think it would take such a miracle that it's pointless? Is it too hard for God to turn whatever situation you're facing around? Are you living as though some things are too hard for the Lord? Now, we spend so much time trying to analyze the joke instead of just enjoying it. If you travel back in time with me, we'll say to my 16-year-old self, and you tell me, Heath, you're going to be a Christian someday. 
It's like, <laughs> no. Ha! <laughs> what a joke. You tell me, not only that, you're going to be a preacher. And you're going to stand up in front of people, telling them about God, telling them about Jesus, that you're going to stand at the Lord's table, breaking the bread that is the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and pouring out the wine that is the cup of His blood and His suffering. That you're going to st- I'm going to be standing up in front of y'all and doing that. <laughs> it's ridiculous. What a joke. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard? I always say, you know, I was not raised in a Christian home. That's obvious by what I just said. But, you know, I had a praying grandmother who decided to share some stuff from the Bible with me when I was 19. And poof, here I am. What a joke. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Genesis 18, we'll end with this. I asked the question, the commentators asked the question, was Sarah laughing at God? Was she laughing at him? Was she laughing at him in disbelief? Maybe him appearing and telling her she was going to have a child was just too preposterous and she had to laugh at it. But by Genesis 21, when Isaac is born, she's not laughing at God. She's laughing with God. Isaac, you know what Isaac means? It means laughter. It means laughter. His name becomes this emblem, this symbol of not her laughing at God, but her laughing with God when he brings this miracle to pass. And she's, she can't do anything but rejoice. She says, Genesis 21, 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. That was a pun. That was a pun. She's telling a joke. It was a pun. God has made Isaac for me. She has this miracle child. God has made laughter for me. She's not laughing at God. Now she's in on the joke. She's laughing with God. She's telling her own joke. I had somebody tell me once that if my career in the ministry didn't work out, I could become a stand-up comedian. And I thought about that. And uh, A, you're much nicer an audience than most stand-up comedians' audiences are. But B, it's like, in some sense, what's the difference? In that I get to stand up here and tell the greatest joke of them all. The story of God stooping so low as to become man. I get to preach the folly of the cross every week. I get to share an out-of-this-world message that is meant to have the whole world laughing with joy by the time we're finished. And I get to watch y'all spread that message and the laughter and the joy that comes with that. I get to tell you bunch of sinners that you're children of God. And we get to laugh together. And we get to rejoice together. You sinners, heralds of the king who showed up looking like a beggar. The prince of peace who showed up looking like the prince of fools. The lamb of God who ended up looking like something that was hung up at a butcher's shop. And then rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. What a joke. Is anything too wonderful for God? That was the question to Sarah and it's the question I want to leave you with. Is anything too wonderful for God? Do you get the joke? 
and strike up the band, play a hymn, and if we have to explain it anymore, don't bother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us this morning. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Lord, help us to leave this place not only believing that intellectually, but feeling that. Feeling the power of the joke that Jesus Christ came to this world to die for us while we were still sinners. And help us to leave this place in light of his death and resurrection, filled with laughter and filled with joy, not laughing at you, but laughing with you in this great plan that you not only set up for the fullness of time, but this plan that's now been carried out through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Fill us with wonder, love, and praise, and give us joy and delight in proclaiming your redemption. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing our closing hymn, which is number 701, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Now leave with God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.